Hello, beautiful people. You are listening to the Communal Table Podcast, part of Food & Wine Pro. I'm Kat Kinsman, your host, and please sign up for the uh, the pro newsletter that comes every week with tips, tricks for being a more observant and better human and a better restaurateur. And definitely, as soon as you can, get your hands on a copy of the September issue of Food & Wine. It's got world's best restaurants. It's got recipes from around the globe picked up by by chefs and some of our favorite people in the food world. And it's just a delicious, delicious read. Now, I am ridiculously excited about my guest this week because we have gotten to sit down on panels together like a billion times, mm-hmm. <laughs> but we have never really gotten to sit down and talk one-on-one. And I find you to be one of the most fascinating, warm, incredible people in the food world. She is the uh, chef owner of Compare Le Pan and Bywater American Bistro in New Orleans. Welcome, Nina Compton. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh. So you are here in New York. Uh, talk to me about the right now the temperature difference between here and New Orleans. It's Dramatically different. Um, and I was here yesterday and it was, it rained just... <gasps> torrential. <laughs> torrential rain. And I walked outside and I'm like, it's actually cool and refreshing. <laughs> Whereas in New York, it's like a steam sauna thing going on. So oh. yeah, I... I'm used to the summers in New Orleans. I I was there just a few weeks ago, and there were torrential rainstorms. I walked outside. It was like walking into hot jello. (laughs) (laughs) So this must, you know, I am down there uh, often in July for Tales of the Cocktail, Mm -hmm. and I but I know that summers can be really difficult for restaurant owners at that time of year. Yes. So you've been there. What what year did you get there? Actually, let's back up for a second. You landed in New Orleans yes. in a really interesting way. So let's talk about how that happened. So I was in Miami for almost 14 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after Top Chef, my world became really crazy. And I was actually thinking about it today um, in the cab coming over here. And... You know, after Top Chef, people are like, oh, your world is going to change. Everything's going to mm-hmm. implode and you're going to get all these offers. And the finale happened mm-hmm. and there was crickets. Really? So, so I'm like, what? So I'm like, well, maybe nothing's going to come of this. And then it just started to like pick up mm-hmm. where people are like, oh, come to this event here. And I started traveling a lot mm-hmm. um, and then also having a full time job on that. And then people throwing all these offers at you. It just became really overwhelming. What year was this? 2014. Okay. And what year were you a food and wine best new chef? Was that 2017? Okay. Yeah. So, yes, this is this is a thing that happens. It, it, you, you have your... your you're a, you're a chef through and through. Mm-hmm. I, t- I met your mom recently yeah. <laughs> when we were in Aspen. And she was talking about how it was this thing that just lit you up. Up. Yeah, and this is the, this is what fuels you. This is the life you you knew. So you're used to being in the kitchen and getting it done, right? So all of a sudden, there's this layer of all of these other things: appearances, right. traveling. How do you how do you how were you dealing with? Well, that? I thought I was dealing with it very well, and then I I, I quit my job because I saw it as I was getting very overwhelmed mm-hmm. and I was getting a little burnt out because I was. It, you know, it's like traveling, doing an event on appearance, and then landing, going straight to the restaurant, and then mm-hmm. working a service. It would just became mentally taxing. And I told my husband, and you know, thank God he was so supportive. And I mm-hmm. said, I, I think I just need to just step away and figure out what's next for us. And he's in restaurants too. Yes. And so I took six months off, mm-hmm. and you know, during that I was just 
helping friends out. You know, I went home to see my family and I had so many offers on the table, people saying, come, come to New York, open a restaurant in New York, Chicago, LA, all, mm-hmm. all these things, Miami. And some of them sound really enticing and some of them were just like, I'm like, this is never going to work. Mm-hmm. And some of them, I, I'm like, I don't want to live there. And I remember I was in Toronto and my husband calls up, he's like, we got a really amazing phone call. And I'm like, I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, we have a phone call tomorrow with these people that want to do a restaurant in New Orleans. And I said, Ooh. and I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, listen, Larry, we've done 20 of these calls. It's nothing's going to come of it. And he's like, no, but I feel really good about this. And we spoke on the phone and they said, well, you want to come see the space? And we walked into the space. Oh, it's stunning. And it was just brick walls, dirt floors, wires hanging down. And I walked in, I'm like, this is the most beautiful restaurant. It just it just spoke mm. to me. And it wasn't finished. It wasn't yeah. it was in this very raw state. But something about the space just it just felt like this was meant to be. It just felt very natural to me. And that city, had you, before your time on, on Top Chef, and your season was set there. Yes. Had you been there? Had you spent any time there? No. Um, wow. We were supposed to go there on a honeymoon. And we just, we, I said, I'm like, you know, it'd be great. I'm like, we can go to New Orleans anytime. I'm, I'm like, I just want to go to the beach and hang out, mm-hmm. which we did, which was great. But it was always on the back of my mind. I'm mm-hmm. like, how can I get to this city? How can I get there? And when we did the casting, and they said, we're going to be shooting in New Orleans. And I'm like, oh, my God, I finally get to go. I finally get to <laughs> hang out. And it was when I, I remember when we got into the city mm-hmm. and just driving through all the different neighborhoods. It's very just like magical and captivating and the energy is different. And I'm like, this is, I really like this city. It. There's something so special about it. And if you were a person who was meant to be in New Orleans, you just know it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I remember the first time I went, I was there for work and I didn't expect to fall in love. Yeah. And I, uh, you know, we were throwing, I was, when I was still at CNN, we were throwing a a dinner. The chef was a chef who will not be named, but (laughs) the chef had brought along two other people to do the cooking. And I didn't know I was going to get two great friends that day in the form of Mike Galata and Kelly Fields. Oh, they're so great. And I, and I just remember at the end of the night we had thrown this this uh dinner at james carville and mary madeline's house uh, yeah. and mary madeline like she was wearing this crazy feather boa and she put her uh arm around me and, and said like you belong here you don't oh, even know you yet. do and like, <laughs> you do and then i brought my husband and he got it too and the thing is i always felt like there's a kinship between new york and new orleans because you can kind of be who and however you want to be right and you grew up in St. Lucia. Do you feel like there's you know, a similarity in There's vibe? a lot of similarities. A lot of just starting with the buildings, the cuisine, mm-hmm. the freedom of just the way people are. Yeah. Um, just the pace of life is just more like just chill out, relax. It will, it'll get done. There's no rush. And it's just the way people people go out for lunch. There's no like, I got to go back to work. It's more like... I love a New Orleans lunch. It it's, just lasts. It's, it's, it, yeah, it's great. And there is no judgment if, you know, you're having like a glass of wine and you're having lunch with some friends. But it is this mentality of it's about life and it's about friendships and it's about sharing things with people because it's surrounded by food. And I think as mm-hmm. a chef, it's it's very special when people say, hey, you're new in town. I'm doing a crawfish boil. Do you want to come over? 
and you go then as 25 people and then now you have 25 new friends. Yes. So it becomes very an exchange of, uh, you know, people's uh, stories, you know, over food. And that's a very, very special thing for me because I've met so many people just being invited to a house just for a dinner party or whatever it is. But I see them and I'm like, oh my gosh, let's hang out again because it, it, it really becomes a fast friendship and you have quality time together, which I think a lot of people don't do. And I, it's like, I don't have time, but I'm like, let's have a dinner party. Let's just invite, you know, eight friends over and let's just all like share a moment together. You got, it's, it feels like it's a priority there. Like there's sort of, especially designated times. Like you, you probably know my friend Pablo Johnson. Yes. yes. And he, uh, he throws these legendary red beans and, and rice, rice. Yeah. on, on, on Monday uh, nights in, in New Orleans. And it, and he, he actually has a thing where he takes it on the road and he, he does it around the country yes. now. But I remember one of the first times I was in New Orleans sitting down at that table and I left with friends yes. who are total strangers before. And he never even knows who's going to show up. He, he invites a certain amount of people. And then sometimes he says like, okay, you can invite somebody. He walked out of the kitchen once and Benedict Cumberbatch yeah. <laughs> there in the kitchen. And he was like, well, okay. He'd just been like watching all of Sherlock. Or yeah. But it, it feels like New Orleans has that sensibility to it in a really meaningful way. And, but the thing you've been able to do, and I think this is wonderful, is to bring a different kind of culinary sensibility to the city, which in it's it's been fascinating to watch. I've only been going there since maybe like 2010, 2011. Mm-hmm. And to see the evolution in the kinds of restaurants that are opening and the people who are opening restaurants is such a change because I feel like there, there's this wonderful old guard that right. I really appreciate. I mean, I make a point of going to Galatoire's for lunch on a Friday. Right, right, <laughs> there, right. And you have these stalwarts like there, Commander's Palace and Brennan's and all of these places. But then it feels like there has been a wave in the past, you know, 10 years or, or so post-Katrina, well, right. post-Katrina, definitely, of new kinds of restaurants opening. There ha- Do you feel like there had been a Caribbean sensibility before that? Or is that something, I feel like you're somebody who's really helped introduce that to the city. And now it's something that in the city, it's kind of like, well, why not? Of course we right. have but, yeah. you're, but you're the one who really kind of brought that. Well, I think, you know, it's, for me, it was very intimidating you know, when I knew that we were going to move to open a restaurant. Yeah. Because like you said, there is a lot of the the heavyweights that are still there, you know. Fair, yeah. Emeralds, Donna Link, Galatoire's, uh, Arno's. And that's what people associate New Orleans with. You know, when they think about that, they think about Bananas Foster's at Brennan's. And Which is like, yum. <laughs> it's so good. But I'm like, how am I going to come in and introduce something new mm-hmm. and people get it? Yeah. And luckily enough, people there love to eat out mm-hmm. and they have, they're have they excited about food at any given moment. So for me to say I'm doing Caribbean food, which if you if you look at the history of New Orleans, there is so much influences that are similar in the Caribbean and oh, also yeah. in New Orleans. So for me, it was a very easy way to say, hey, I'm cooking, you know, curried goat or I'm doing pickled shrimp with something, something, something. People like, OK, that makes sense. So it was just nice to have a nice little history lesson and also just a connection between the two. It just makes sense. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, there's populations definitely change post-storm. And mm-hmm. and it's it's an interesting thing because, you know, I didn't go down until after. 
And, you know, when I was, I was working at CNN with a lot of people who were entrenched there for a very long time, right. who uh, you know, lived at the Royal Sinesta for a very long time, made yeah. some quite deep ties. Uh, you know, I, I have uh, some uh, friends from there who ended up moving there because of the, the tie. But it's, right. it's something that still is very much present for the city. And I know that there are moments of PTSD that happen for people. It's, it's, it's a very tough thing because when I moved there... That was one of the things I wanted to like wrap my head around. Yeah. Because you can only gather so much information from watching the news mm-hmm. or pictures or anything. But when you hear people's personal stories, it is really, I mean, you just want to cry. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm talking, I you, everybody's story is so different. And people went, some people recovered quicker than others. You know, I have chefs um, like Frank Brightson when he talked oh, about Katrina. And he just said, you know, we had to leave. And it's like you you leave your restaurant, your livelihood. And everybody basically came back and they didn't know what they were coming back to. And, you know, there was police around the block and they're saying, what are you doing here? It's like, well, my restaurant is down the street. I want to go check on it. And then you come back and it's just mold everywhere. And it's just, it's just sad because everybody lost pretty much everything that they spent their life to build and to have to rebuild. So I think a lot of it when people, we had a, a, a scare a couple of ago with, with Hurricane Barry and yeah. people just like, we're going to evacuate, you know, the river's very high, we're, we're going to leave. And it was just, it was a state of panic. And I get it because, you know, we were just sitting there, we're like, what are we going to do? Are we going to evacuate? And I'm like, I, I didn't know what to do. You know, and I was just scared because I'm like, what if this storm hits? What's going to be after the storm? Yeah. You know, how do you fix everything? And it's also, you have to worry about also placement of staff. Yes. What if the storm hits? You know, how are you going to help your staff, you know, keep their, their, their salaries going and everything else and their families safe? Because that's a big thing is making sure they take care of your people as well. Well, even just if you're debating, should we open tonight or not? I saw, you know, a few weeks ago as the, the storm was, was coming in, friends of mine debating, are we open? Are we close? How do we, how do we it's do tough. that? Do we put this, this stuff up? And, and, you know, it, and it's, it's a town that is run on hospitality mm-hmm. in such a deep and, and meaningful way. Yes. And y'all are looking out for each other in an incredibly special way. Right. Yeah. Well, I remember because a lot of restaurants had closed and Compella Penance actually in a hotel. Mm-hmm. So whoever worked, um, they stayed in the hotel and they could bring their families. That's great. You know, the entire time that they were there just to make sure they're safe. We made sure we had everybody's family got fed and it was, it was just like, we're all in this together. And when the storm was passing and restaurants started slowly opening, I remember there was one night, the entire dining was all my chef friends. So Kelly oh, Fields yes. came, Joaquin <laughs> from Bacchanal came, Mason from Tokyo and the Wolf came. I'm like, you guys are really making me work hard today. <laughs> but it was just nice because they were just like, we're cooped up. We have nowhere to go and you guys are open. So we're just going to come and have like a good meal. Yeah. And that was just that was just really nice that we could do that for them. I was sort of following that on Instagram, seeing kind of the migration patterns of the chefs yeah. throughout the city and who was going to support where. Because I, I, and the thing is, I think people were trying to figure out, OK, they're open. We want to support them yes. and, and all that. And yeah, but I, I so I've been wanting to ask you about this because I, I feel like New York 
and New Orleans have another kinship in that we are both cities that have undergone significant tragedy mm-hmm. and loss, like a, a collective shared kind of trauma. And you talk to New, to New Yorkers who've lived here for a fair amount of time and, you know, we are you know, feet, if we, if we walked upstairs or outside from the studio, like there's the 9-11 memorial right, right. there, because it happened right there. And it's very present here and it's very present in New Orleans and it affects people in all kinds of different ways. How do you deal with the emotional needs of people who work with, for, around you who might, when a storm warning comes up, have some sort of reaction to right. it? How do you be sensitive to that and still run a, run a business? What are the precautions you have to take there? Well, I think I think you have to, first of all, take care of your staff, number mm-hmm. one. That's the most important thing because you need everybody. I can, st- I can easily say, oh, I don't need anybody, but that's a lie because I can't cook and clean and do all these things for one person, I can't, I can't do that. But it's it's also just communicating with people, yeah. you know, checking in, how are you doing, What what's your plan for the storm? Um, you know, people say, hey, chef, if you need me to come in, I'll come in. And I'm like, no, your safety is more important. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the biggest thing is communicating what they need from you and what they need from, what we need from each other, essentially. Um, and you kind of basically meet in the middle, like, okay, I'm not going to force you um, to come in. I'm like, if you want to come in and that's fine, but you don't have to come in. Um, but just check, checking in and making sure that if they need help, do you need to get a hotel? Do you need, um, money to evacuate? And those are the things that it, it goes a long way because it's just being a good human and taking care of people because it's a time of need. And it's just a matter of just saying, Hey, I'm here if you need anything and you may not need anything, but just, the fact that you're offering that gesture goes so much further. Even somebody asking what you need is an amazing yes. thing. Yeah. So I'm always also fascinated by restaurants and places that are in hotels because you know you're very much in a in a tourist city. So and I know you have your regulars because yeah. I know a lot of friends of yeah. mine who are your regulars, especially at that bar. Yeah. And but you also have this transient population of people by virtue of the fact of being in a hotel. And I also know from friends who have places in New Orleans that it's a place that a lot of people go and they maybe forget their manners at home. Right. Um, and it's it's a thing that also happens uh, to, you know, in, in Vegas restaurants. Mm-hmm. People think, woohoo, I'm on vacation, therefore right. the rest of the world must be. And there is, and there can be some pretty, uh, gnarly behavior because they don't have to account for the fact like, oh, I'm just passing through. So it doesn't matter what I do. How do you deal with that? And how do you empower your, your team to deal with people who, uh, maybe have, uh, you can, you can, uh, a lot of places are, are, there are places that are 24 hours, right? And and you can also carry your drink around. Yes. It's yeah. It it can be, um, a slippery slope in New Orleans because it is, uh, it's very festive. It's nobody's in a bad mood. Nobody's pissed off. Everybody's happy. Like you go to Walgreens and the cashier says, "Hey, baby, how are you today?" <laughs> you know, everybody's there, everybody's in a good mood, and it, it it has this vibe of just like carefree, do whatever you want. You can walk around and have drinks, and it can be dangerous because a lot of people just bar hop. They wake up, yeah. they go have lunch, and like you walk you around breakfast and, drink. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and you just keep on bouncing around. And I think a lot of people um, don't know how to control themselves. So we do get some patrons that are, you can tell, like, oh, the chef, they've been day drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, so you kind of have to 
when I when we have that happen in the restaurant, I tell my staff, I'm like, try not to upset them because it's if you, the second you say you've been drinking, sir, or this and that, it's like they get aggravated. Like, no, no, have right, it. right. <clears throat> so you have to have this delicate approach of you want to get your order in right away. We can definitely do that for you. You know X Y Z. Um, but you kind of have to have that delicate balance of making sure that they're not getting rowdy. And if they do get rowdy, then a manager steps in and says, listen, I think um, it's time for you to leave. And most of them, they know. They know that they're out of place because everybody's looking at them in the dining room like, you've, you've pushed yeah. it. Like, it's, it's time for you to go. And it's just, it's just a matter of not shaming them, but that just telling them, like, listen, you're, you're kind of embarrassing yourself now. And mm-hmm. I think it's just best if you just leave. Yeah. So you and I have talked about this on panels before, but I just I, – I love this. <laughs> so uh, for folks who don't know, uh, Nina's husband, Larry, runs the front of the yeah. house. And uh, I'm Facebook friends with him. And he does a truly amazing and wonderful job of uh, responding to Yelp reviews. Yes. <laughs> In a way, because, you know, the, I, I, I think we can all agree that – it's best if if you have an issue at a restaurant, it's best to deal with it in real time. Say to the staff, right. like, I'm not having a great time or, you know, there's something going on. But, oh, no, no. A lot of people hide behind Yelp and leave, right. <laughs> leave a review later. So Larry does this wonderful thing where he sort of screenshots and he <laughs> responds because he remembers all these yes. people who are, are making a case for, you know, whatever, whatever happened to happen. He's like, well, the reality is that you behaved this way. Right, right. <laughs> and um, he... He's not afraid also to kick people out who have been behaving badly or calling right. them on their their behavior. And what I really love about this is it's great to see people take a stand because it's always in defense of other patrons or your staff, yeah. which is so important. It is very important because I think a restaurant is meant to be a place where you can go and get nourished mm-hmm. and have a good time and be surrounded by friends or family or just... Just, just just, to have a good time. And when somebody starts to disrupt that, we don't take that very lightly. We need to basically, I mean, we've had people that get a little too rowdy and they get too loud. We come in and say, hey, the table next to you, they're trying to have a very quiet, romantic dinner and you're just getting a little too loud. Mm-hmm. And then the, it's just a matter of awareness um, that a lot of people don't realize that they're pissing off the guests next to them. So we definitely want to make sure that our guests feel comfortable and also a staff yeah and if the staff we always tell them if this if a guest says something that's offensive to you let us know right away and we'll take care of it because that's what it is I think a lot of people feel like well if I'm paying for my meal I get to do whatever I want which is not the case no it's not the case and I think with Yelp it it's 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 a little one-sided um it's not one-sided it it is Mm one-sided because as a restaurant a restaurant or I can't, there's no rebuttal. I, nobody hears my say. They just hear what this disgruntled person says about a restaurant. Oh, I came in, the hostess was rude, the food was bland, the chef wasn't in the can't kitchen. Your food being bland. But it's ever. just what, what, what people say, and whether it's my restaurant or any restaurant, mm-hmm. and it's like, I've been reading all these reviews and uh, things fell flat. So it's, there's no like reason why you thought things fell flat. And we were saying, you know, what gives these people any credit? Because you see five stars, two stars, one stars, all these things. And, and people go on these websites and they're basing their reservations on the reviews that people that are not 
rail restaurant critics, they're basing that on, oh, it sort of seems terrible, food is a little spotty, I'm not going to go to that restaurant, just based on Yelp. And it's not fair because sometimes they may not get the food, they might understand the concept, they might, we could, we're not allowed to have an off day. Yeah, every dish has to every be dish on has point. To, exactly, and there's no leeway because we have to deliver every single day. And we are breakfast, lunch, and dinner, 365. That's a lot of pressure to have every single day that you have to hit that mark every single day. And that is a high-volume restaurant, too, because mm-hmm. I always feel like, I, you know, I, I go by and, like, every, it's just jam-packed. And I'm always happy for you. And I, you know, and I think, like, oh, I wish I could go there. They're full. Of, I'll go next time. <laughs> next time it is, is, is full. But I've, I've managed to get in uh, yeah. a couple of times. Did you imagine, because you, again, like, talking to your mom yeah. <laughs> her talking about you wanting to be a chef and, and doing this and you, you've, you've, You've gone through some really impressive places to do your training. You were at Danielle and yeah. you were like at, at all of these places and you knew you wanted to be in a kitchen. You knew you wanted to cook. When did you know you wanted to be a restaurateur? That's a different ballgame. It's, yeah, it's definitely different. I think it, you know, when you're training under so many people for, for so many years, I think it just becomes a natural jump of just like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take a chance. I'm going to risk risk it all. Um, and I think you have to really believe in yourself and, and believe in how can you make this happen. Um, and I think a lot of people are scared to do it because it is a, it is a risk. A lot of restaurants close within the first year because they just can't make the numbers match. Uh, or it you get, you know, people say the food is not good. You know, and you're like publicly, you're out, you're putting yourself out there. Yeah. So it is it is very tough and I think a lot of people they just can't afford to open a restaurant on their own because it is very expensive and I think a lot of people it becomes this fantasy like oh I want to open my own restaurant <laughs> I want to do this and I'm like it's a lot of work yeah and if you're putting your own money in that's a risk and are you willing to take that risk so I think there's a lot of things that people have to consider that if you're really going to do it you have to really commit there's no half in or half out and what I'm seeing more and more, both in New York and New Orleans, is restaurants that are built as like a cornerstone of a restaurant, of an apartment building, of something. Can you talk a little bit about the the business of that? How does that work? Yeah, I think a lot of people, um, because landlords now, they get greedy and they want to jack up the price cause, because there's so many restaurants that that want to open up. So that's why when I was in Miami, it's... It's scary when somebody says your rent is going to be $30,000. Oh, my God. That's and, a- you know, it's you think, okay, that's in a prime location. And I remember my husband telling me, like, okay, if we're going to look at the space, um, it's a prime location. We could probably do really well. And he's like, make a business plan. Make a schedule with the dishwashers, the sous chefs, and just put, like, their salary or their rate for each day and just do the math of what it – it's going to cost us. And this is not including food or uniforms or liquor, insurance or anything. It worked out to be like $50,000 with rent. A month. And that is, that is just, mm-hmm. just labor and rent. That's not including anything else. And I'm like, that's a lot of money every single month. And things go up and things go down. And that's one thing that is fixed is salaries. And rent. There's, there's no way around it. And I'm like, 
in the summertime, it's dead. Mm-hmm. And I still have to pay 50 plus thousand. That's, that's a hard pill to, to swallow. And I think that's why a lot of people say, oh, yeah, we could make it up in the busy season. But that's a huge risk because anything can happen. Yeah. Uh, life is unpredictable. Yeah. Nature is unpredictable. Exactly. If a hurricane comes and knocks everything out, you still have to pay. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Your landlord isn't going to be like, well, you know, yeah. <laughs> you get a break. So when you are part of a hotel or something like that, do you still have to pay rent? I know that's a silly question. It I just depends. Don't... Yeah. It depends. Uh, some are management deals mm-hmm. where you get a percentage. Uh, some deals are structured where you do, you, you do pay rent. So it all depends. Um, and that depends on if you are doing the build out or if the hotel is doing the build out. There's, there's so many uh, different deals that you can structure. It's so fascinating to me because, and I think this is something where the public doesn't necessarily have an eye into this. And, you know, it's like running an independent restaurant seems like the scariest thing in the entire universe. It's, 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 it's hard. Yeah. Any, running any restaurant is hard because, you know, even though you you think you may have the cushion of being in a hotel and all these things, you Mm -hmm. still have to deliver numbers. Yeah, and so Bywater, is that part of anything else? or is No, that, that's independent, yeah. Wow, that's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you're a masochist is what you're yeah. saying. <laughs> so first of all, being a chef and having to go in there and do that day in, day out. Yeah. The grind of that. Like, that in and of itself would be enough. Now, that's it's hard enough for a line cook. Now you're the, you know, the, the executive chef, right. the, the chef de cuisine, you know, you're the, oh, the chef owner. Another layer. Once you're the owner of the business, the restaurateur, th- that is more. Mm-hmm. You are also a media personality. Right. How do you emotionally manage this? How do you let go and have any time for yourself? Because you're also married to the right. person. Yeah, you yeah. Have the things with. How do you do that? It's um. Well, first of all, you have to love what you do. Yeah. You know, because that that basically cuts out the. The mentality of oh I gotta go to work, yeah. you know what I mean? Like that cuts it in half right away. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also just having, just being organized. Mm-hmm. I think time management is a very big part of it. I think if you're not scheduling things, and I tell my publicist, I'm like, she's like, oh we're gonna have you do this event, and I'm like, just send me a calendar because mm-hmm. that's the only way I can really, <laughs> right. I can only organize my life. Um, you know, I check my emails. First thing when I wake up, last thing before I go to bed, I try and answer all my emails in the same day. Um, and if I can't answer it fully, I just say, hey, I'm traveling. I'll get back to you on Friday when I'm back in town. Because then I have just, I could zone out and just do that. Um, but it's just a matter of just carving time out. Yeah. You know, it, you have to decompress a little bit and step out. You know, I tell Mike Galata as well, I tell him he's a dear friend of mine. And I'm like, sometimes you have to just step away in between services and just go have a coffee. Like when the restaurants are cranking and you have so much going on and it's just like, everybody's like, chef, you know, the, the fish didn't come in yet and the chickens are late and the, the produce company didn't have the carrots Mommy, 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 uh, mommy, yeah, mommy, it, mommy. It, it's like you're, 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 your brain is frying. And I told him, I'm like, sometimes I just, I go to Koshan and I'll have a sandwich. Mm-hmm. It might be 20 minutes. And I come back and I just, it clears your mind a little bit. And those are the little things you can do. Just step outside, have a cup of coffee, just walk around the block. 
That's what I hear a lot. I had um, Akhtar Nawab was just in here uh, last week, and he's just opened up in New Orleans yeah. and is trying to sort of figure out the, the the pace of that. And he's also going back and forth, uh, you know, among various cities. Yeah. And he was realizing, and you know, and also his his GM, they walk, and he said that you just have to take that walk to yeah. to clear your head. I know Kelly Fields does that walk around the block. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know Mike Galata um, goes running. Yeah. Yeah. Well. well, he goes late night. I don't know yeah. why. I'm like, it's, you're crazy. It's a late night running club. And I think just to sort of burn off some of that, because he also told me he was trying to cut down on the coffee. Right, 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 right. <laughs> uh, but it's a, it is a thing. Um, at the end of the night. We it, talked about this, the yeah. empty hour. Yeah. Yeah. I, and don't you love that phrase? So the person who sort of coined that, the empty hour, Greg Baker, um, has a restaurant or had a restaurant till this last weekend. He did. He finally, after I think 15 years of having that restaurant, shut the doors wow. and stepped away voluntarily. So his whole life is kind of going to be the empty hour for right. the next bit as he figures out what that next thing is. But uh, for folks who aren't familiar with this concept, it's that, that that moment at the end of service, you have to be on. Yeah. Front, whether you're front of house, back of house, whatever you are, you have to be every single cell in the game. Yes. And unless you are a person who somehow is a fantastic freak of nature, you don't have an immediate off switch. Right. And you have to dump all that energy somewhere. Yes. And there are a lot of different ways to to cope and deal with that. So I'd love to know what you do that for yourself. And then how do you model that for your team about what to do? Well, you know, it's, I was, I've been cooking for a while. And as a young cook, the only outlet was, let's go to the bar. Yep. And it was just, let's just go and you vent about the day and, oh, this sous chef was so hard on me today and everybody's just venting, you know, just letting it out, which is, it's, it's healthy because when you go home, it's, you're decompressed. But then you're realizing that you're going home at three, four in the morning and you're intoxicated and it's not healthy and you're not eating properly, you're not sleeping properly. Um, so I cut that out. I, I don't, was I don't. Was a moment in particular or? It just wasn't, I was just getting to the point where I was, I became a sous chef and I'm like, I can't, I have to be on it every single day. I can't, you know, I have cooks that day like, oh, chef, I wake up at two in the afternoon. I'm like, why? Mm. They're like, oh, so I don't go to bed until four or five. And I'm like, I have never done that. I've never, even when I was a cook, I still would wake up by nine, 10 o'clock and just like be a little more productive. But I I stopped doing that because my body just doesn't feel good the next yeah. day. And when you're working 14 hours a day mm-hmm. and, you know, as a manager, people are looking to you to have the answers right away. Not where like, oh, I don't really know. And your brain moves a little slower because you're hungover, your head hurts. It wasn't worth it to me anymore. So I cut that out and I try and I tell my, my cooks, I'm like, Either working out, some people do that. People go to the gym after work. That helps. Um, going home and reading a book. Reading a book puts me straight to sleep. Yeah. Um, I, I watch random things on TV like forensic files. Like that's, <laughs> that is my go-to. Love that, that crime. <laughs> I have a friend who's obsessed with that crime network. <laughs> I love it because for me, how bad my day is. <laughs> I'm I'm so engaged because I am intrigued by yeah. what they can find by just a, a, a fiber of this plastic mat that was only in a 1988 <laughs> Honda Civic and they were only 
20 in this small town and just it's just so many things that it's just like you have to really focus on what the storyline of that episode is and I'm not thinking about a restaurant or yeah. did I put the orders in but I'm like how did they find this guy you know so yeah. those things for me I completely shut my day off I'm not stewing about the day because I'm just distracted by this whole murder mystery thing <laughs> that's such a like finding your thing is so important and yeah. I was reading also that there's some music that really like how do you so how do you engage with the music are you a headphones person I'm a yeah I'm a head I do I don't do, listen to music so much at night um but definitely the first thing I do when I wake up mm-hmm. I put music on and that kind of like sets my tone yeah. it, it really does like I, I'll wake up I'll check my emails I'll put music on um I'll have coffee and I'll just, that will just like, it sets my tone. And I drive my vest, but I should not be listening to music, but I do anyway. <laughs> it's an eight minute drive. Right. So I just put it in and I walk into the restaurant, I take my headphones off and I start my day. So it, it kind of like really puts me in a good mood. That sounds like, and it was funny, I was talking to our producer ahead of this and she said she'd filmed you on your Vespa yeah. before. I think like that's a really cool way to experience uh, New Orleans is doing that. I think everybody should drive a Vespa. Whatever city you're in, you should <laughs> definitely have one. Because I think it's, um, you know, when you're in a car, you don't have that outside sensory of what's going on. You don't feel the heat or the, the, the coolness. Um, you also don't really hear the sounds you know, because when you're when you're at a stop sign, like you can look around and 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 you you feel like you're part of it. And there's always something to look at in that there's city. There's always something. Yeah, there's always something. <laughs> some music playing. Some uh, yeah. Something. It's like even when I drive through the French Quarter, um, I drive by Cafe de Mon every um, day. Yeah. And they have all these horse carriages, and there's one guy I drive by him every day, every day, every day, and he has a purple carriage. It's purple and white, and he wears every day some kind of purple outfit. Oh, wow. He's That's always, commitment. <laughs> he, every single day, I've never seen him outside of that. <clears throat> He'll have the hat, glasses, slacks, shoes, everything. Everything is purple. And one day I saw him at the gas station, and he wasn't wearing purple. And I was just like, I'm like, you're the guy with the carriage, right? And he's like, yeah. And I was just like obsessed with him because <laughs> <clears throat> he always wore purple. And we finally became friends. Oh. So I'm like, I'm Nina. And he's like, nice to see you. And I'm like, he's like, my name is David. So every day I drive by, I go, beep, beep, David. And I keep on driving. So it's it's just fun. It's just fun. I love that. And then, So you opened a second restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a lot of extra work yeah. on top of your already incredibly busy restaurant. So what is that impulse to open a second place? It wasn't an impulse. It was having somebody in my team that was really talented and I wanted to give him his own platform. That's generous. And that is a generosity that not all chefs have. We all, we all know those empires where you get to a certain stuck place and right. you can never move forward. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, and I, I didn't want to be selfish um, because I think that when you have the resources to do that, to help somebody out, why not? You yeah. know, because I think it's only fair to let them express their talent. Because um, I think a lot of chefs can kind of be greedy and kind of hoard that talent. And you have a lot of chefs and chefs de cuisine that work for 
big names and you don't know who they are. That breaks my heart. Like, I'm trying to do my best to figure out sort of who those people are. Who's the name on the door? Who's the name, you know? Behind the scenes. Because we all know that I think now that chefs, it's not just cooking anymore. Yeah. And I think the expectations and the, the not I wouldn't say the requirements so much, but you get pulled in so many corners as a chef now, even yeah. though you have a restaurant and people still, they know that you're busy, you know you're running a business, but they say, hey, we're doing this charity event in Chicago for XYZ. Do you want to commit and cook for this charity and do it for a good cause? And a lot of times I say yes, because that that doesn't, it, it's, I'm giving back and I'm able to do that. And that's a luxury to have. Uh, and I think you get pulled into a lot of things where you're just like, you're like, well, okay, now it's the point where I'm like, I have to cut down my travel because um, I was doing too much travel because um, I was, I want to be in my kitchen. I want to be with my staff. I want to know what's going on. Like today they're telling me like, hey, chef, um, give the recipe for the shrimp sauce. We need to make it. And I'm like, no, 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 we have enough. I made some before I left on this trip. It's on the top shelf. This <laughs> And they call me back and like, yes, you're right. I, 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 I am obsessed with knowing what's going on in my restaurants. Yeah. Do you have cameras like that you can see from your phone? We have one um, at, at, at New Restaurant Babs. Um, so for me, I like to know what's going on. I like to be with my staff and my staff, also, they also want to be with me. And they're like, you know, if I travel, they're like, oh, chef, you're, you're leaving again. And like, yeah. it's like, they're like my kids. Yeah. So, you know, it's, again, the... Chefs get pulled out of the kitchen so easily. Yeah. And it's enticing when somebody says, hey, do you want to go cook in New Zealand? Yeah. <laughs> you you don't say no. Or somebody says, oh, do you want to come and cook uh, in, in Portland? And as a chef, you're like, oh, my God, the produce is amazing. The seafood is amazing. And as a chef, if you get a chance to travel, that's even an advantage for you because now you can go to the restaurants in Portland and you can experience something new. And you're just like, okay, research and development. You come back and you're more energized. Yeah. And the staff like, oh, chef, where did you go this time? Oh, I went to this restaurant. I had this really cool, you know, eggplant and tamarind dish. And this, and that you get inspired by those things. That show up in, it, uh, show up in family meal? <laughs> it, it, anything, you know. And then oh, you, you, you think about, oh, my, change this sauce to adding this. Or, you know, I went to Le Cuckoo and I had this. Oh, God, I love that restaurant. It's so good. And I had the, the rabbit potafu and I tried the broth and I'm like... This is so good, but I'm like, there's something that is very unique in here, and I, I'm like, is it, is it lemon verbena? Is it, what what's going on? They're like a lot of lime. Oh. And I'm like, that's not a, that's not very French, but I'm like, it's it takes to the next level. So that's the thing about you know when you, you're traveling so much and you get so energized. Um, I think a lot of chefs, either you you choose that lifestyle. Or you're in the kitchen, and I think it's very, <clears throat> excuse me, very hard to balance both. It is because what what do you do? And you know, when we opened the second restaurant, I said, okay, Levi, this is this is for you. This is this is your restaurant. You're gonna be the chef here, you know, and that, and that's it. And it's 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 not in, a, in an ego way where I'm I'm gonna open up 15 restaurants just just to say I'm gonna open 15 restaurants. But I'm like, if I can do that to some for somebody, and allow him to have his dream, why not? 
So I, I know we're sort of running short on time. I got the signal, but there was something I wanted to ask you about. And it goes into that because you are doing things for other people. You are not afraid to get political in your actions mm-hmm. with the restaurant. And you took part recently in a, a bake sale. It was yes, a bake yes, sale. Yes, yeah, very controversial bake sale. And you got heat for it, too. Uh, everybody did. So if you can explain what this was, because I, I, I greatly admire um, everyone who, who got involved in this because I, I know the threats that came in from yes, it. Yes, it, it, was, it was a very... Um, I woke up one morning and Mason from Tokyo Wolf, he texted me, he said, we're going to do this bake sale. And I said, I said, okay, tell me more. And he said, it's for women's rights. He's Because they were trying to... Louisiana, yeah, which was trying to shut it down, where women's were not, where women were not allowed to have the right to anything. Yeah, um, and when he said that, I said, "Sign me up." And the email started off with like five chefs, and then weeks go by, and it's six chefs, and ten chefs, and twenty chefs, and thirty chefs, and then fifty chefs. And you look at it when you're responding to the email; it's like. Uh, Mason plus 65 other people were on the email <laughs> and they were all chefs. Um, so we put together this bake sale and, you know, it's my husband and I were just like, I'm like, this is for a good cause. You know, people should be given a right to choose. You know, it's it's their body. They can do whatever they want. Um, and I do understand that there is a religious side to it as well, too, because I don't believe in killing people or this and that. But... There's different circumstances, and we don't know what they are for that woman, and we shouldn't be judging them on that. Yeah. Um, so I think that's why it became very controversial because it became a very religious thing, um, and also being in the South, it is very, they're very religious there. So when we signed up to this bake sale, I'm like. And I'm like, yeah, this is going to be great. And then we started getting emails. and I saw some of the ones that friends of mine got. Yeah. People were getting all these emails saying, we're never going to come to your restaurant. Uh, you're, you're supporting this cause. It shouldn't be a, a, you know, supported. And we were, people were just freaking out because some people, they, they withdrew um, because they thought that their business was going to be affected by that. I think a lot of people um, were scared of, if it, got, if it got violent, because you, you just don't know. Um, so the day of the bake sale, we were driving up and there were hundreds of people outside this building. And I go, my husband, I'm like, I told my husband, I'm like, I'm like please come with me because I don't know what's going to happen. If people are going to throw eggs at us or tomatoes, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. And Make an omelet. <laughs> yeah, something. And um, we pull up and I'm like, oh my God, I'm like, there's so many protesters. I'm like, I'm like, we're outnumbered. And he's like, no, Nina. These are all the people that are going to the bake sale. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, he, and then he, he pointed to the other side of the street. He's like, those five people are the protesters. And I'm like, okay. <sighs> it was just such a really, and it was, it was a very peaceful, um, you know, cause that we did. And we raised almost $50,000 in that one afternoon. So it was just, it was a tremendous um, feeling of like, we raised all this money and, you know, just, I think it, it's just, Again, it's tricky because everybody has different views on it. Yeah. So I I love that you you took that that risk to benefit other people, and you've been doing all these these things. You open a restaurant, yeah. you love, you do these things. What is 
I, I find value in saying things out loud so the universe can help you with it. What mm-hmm. is the selfish thing that you want for yourself? My selfish thing is for me to go back home and retire in nine years. That's the okay. <laughs> so we have a, so we have a timeline here. Yeah, I I went home for my fortieth last October. And, and what and what counts as home? Saint Lucia. Okay. So I went back because it, it's always been in my mind. My mom's okay. getting older. And, She's um, so lovely. She is. I adore her, and she adores you clearly. And for my fortieth, I'm like, mom, because as a child, we'd one of the biggest things that we would do is every Easter, my dad was into sailing, so we would sail down to d- different islands for the Easter weekend, and that was like my fondest childhood memory. Mm-hmm. And I said, mom, I'm like, for my fortieth, I want to go sailing again, like back to the back to the islands that we went as children. And she's like, okay, and I'm like, I'm like. My brother's there, haven't planned everything, I'll pay for everything, we'll go. And we went for four days and it was the <sighs> best. We we woke up, we stayed on the boat and the captain would say, what do you want for lunch? And I'm like, oh, I don't really know. And then the fishermen would come up on their boat and they would knock and they'd say, today we have snapper and lobster and this and that. And my mom would be like, what do you want? And I'm like, I'm going to have lobster, of course. I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah, why would you not? And every day we had a lobster lunch on the beach. Oh my God. And it was just, we saw stingrays and turtles. And it was just like absolute like decompression. I didn't think about a restaurant at any point. And it was just spending time with my family was just so special. Like bringing that childhood moment back to life again. Dear universe, let's get into yeah. this. That is amazing. Yeah. So have you ever cried in the walk-in? Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, and this goes back to when we first opened Compella Pen. I mean, it was a grind. I didn't have a day off for months. And because I was so stressed out on everything being perfect and coming in and being the first one there and the last one out and making sure the kitchen was clean properly and all these things. And it just became mentally taxing where I was, I became a zombie. I was just so tired and just trying to like just get through the day. And I remember just going in the walk-in and just like almost having like a small breakdown because I was just mentally tired, physically tired. And I just felt like, I'm like, what is this all for? What what is this? What what am I gaining from this? What what am I doing this for? And I started to doubt myself because I'm like, can I do this? Can I succeed? You know, we were open for six months at that time, and I started to doubt myself very very strongly. And I'm like, and then I started to say, I'm like, what if my staff doubt me now? And you 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 know it it becomes spiral. Oh. Yeah, it becomes. Um, very scary because then you start to doubt yourself and like and you start looking at your staff like does he doubt me does she doubt me do they believe in me and then I remember I just I snapped out of it because I'm like I'm like no I put all this work I've worked so hard my entire life and I can't mess this up and I have to push through and I have I cried that one time and, and that was it because it it's and I tell people this I'm like you can never show any shadow of doubt, any sign of fear, because people prey on that. Mm-hmm. And the second that they see, okay, she's she's cracking a little bit. So I can I can break her down and I can, you know, it's because that's human nature. And I tell my cooks, I tell my, all my sous chefs, I'm like, don't ever 
show any sign of fear. If it means you have to go in and walk in, cry your eyes out and wipe them and come back and finish service, that's how you do it. The shrimp sauce won't judge you. (laughs) (laughs) It sees all. It knows all. (laughs) No, I think that's really lovely. And I just just love asking people about that walk-in question. Everybody's great in there. What is your comfort food? Oof, that depends. Um, I like I like a good wine and cheese. Yeah, I like Epoix. Oh, that's, you yeah. dig in and <laughs> yeah. it's stinky and it's that. That's a that's a that's like a good like a day off. I don't want to cook anything. Um, I do love curry. Curry is like mm-hmm. any kind of curry. Like rainy day curry for me is like that. That's comfort food. Oh, that sounds so snuggly. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It really is. That with some rice. Oh. Yeah. What is the last meal that you've had that made you feel emotional? Oh, um, actually, this is a this is a funny story. So, we were in town last weekend, and my chef partner that has uh, Babs, um, it was his birthday, and I had, I'm like, what am I gonna get him? Because he's like so particular, mm-hmm. and I'm like, okay, we're gonna be in New York. I'm like, I would love to take him to Eleven Madison because he's never been. <sighs> So we are, he's like, what are we doing on Sunday night? And I'm like, we're going to a fancy dinner party, um, Upper East Side. And he's like, he's like, okay. He's like, who's going to be there? And I'm like trying to like name names and like people that he doesn't know. (laughs) And, um, and I'm like, you got to dress up. Like it's, it's Upper East Side. Like you got to be really well dressed. So we jump in an Uber and the Uber says, 11 Madison Park, right? And I'm like, I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm like, Madison Avenue, like, just keep on going, right? Because he, <laughs> he doesn't know. So we're in the Uber and we're driving along and he's, my friend Levi, the chef, he's looking at the GPS and I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, please don't say where it's going. And um, so we get in front of the restaurant and I'm like, thank you so much. And he's like, where are we going? He's like, we're going, and he points to the building opposite 11 Madison. And uh, he's like, we're going upstairs. And I'm like, no, we're going into this building. He's like, oh, my God, that's 11 Madison Park. He's like, I would love to just go in there and just, just sneak a peek. <laughs> and I'm like, so I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, well, we have to go through the lobby of the building anyway, so we could probably just peek in. <laughs> and we open the door and it's right in the, in the dining room. Yeah. And the girl that I was, I was um, corresponding with through email she was there and she's like, oh my God, Chef Nina, welcome. So good to see you. And I'm like, this is Levi. And she's like, follow me. So we walk to the dining room and he's still not understanding <laughs> what's going on. And um, they're like, your table is here. And they pull out the table and we sit down. And Will Godara left a beautiful card on the Aww. table. And he looks at me and he's like, so where are the other people for the dinner party? <laughs> I'm like, and he's like, wait, he's like, are we eating dinner here? And I'm like, yeah, it's just you and me. And he's just like, really? I'm like tearing up. It was, so- it was because I had been holding that the entire week that we were in New York. And I'm like, how am I going to pull this off and surprise? I'm like, pull out the surprise. What a gift. Yeah. And we had the best time. Oh, God, that's yeah. so lovely. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure Will will be happy to hear that yeah. story, too. <laughs> what is the uh, last meal that somebody cooked for you in their home? Oh, um, my friend Grayson, he has a, a bakery in uh, New Orleans, uh, and he's focusing on, like, 
milling his own grains and mm. flowers and everything else. So what's it called? A, a Bellegarde Bakery, and he is um, venturing out into make, making pastas now with his flour. And he's like, I'm going to have a dinner party at my house. And he had all his breads and like he made pasta with the flour. And it was just like Beautiful. a great meal. And it was just, just thoughtful. Just oh, very thoughtful. Oh, that's so lovely. Yeah. What, I know you love music. Yes. What living musician would you want to cook for and what would you cook for them? Ooh, it's a tough one. Living musician. That's tough. I think... Um, I'm really like my new kick is listening to Santa Gold. Oh, I don't know yeah. if, if you listen to her. Yes. Because um, she has like a, this very edgy mm-hmm. sound. Um, I would probably cook roasted snapper with um, just like crispy vegetables on top and like some kind of blanc. Just very simple. That's yeah. lovely. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing is, like, you probably could do this. She's going to come walking into the restaurant one day. <laughs> I adore oh. her, yeah. Oh, she's so good. Yeah. And I think I've asked you this on stage before, but mm-hmm. I love your answer now. You have five uninterrupted minutes for self-care. What do you do? Like, everything's taken care of. Mm-hmm. Your phone isn't anywhere near you. Everything's set. Um, first of all, I have a glass of wine. Yeah. I would definitely have a glass of wine. And then I would probably... Either read a book or a magazine, or I get like a five-minute massage. Ooh, massage is key. I'm I'm all about getting a massage. That sounds really, yeah. really lovely. Yeah, yeah. I hope you get that. I hope you get <laughs> eternal lobster lunch with Santa yeah. like all of that stuff because you deserve it. You really deserve it. And so, thank you so much to our guest today, no, Nina Compton. It was my and, pleasure. And now, how can people find you on social? Uh, very simple. My handle is Nina Compton. Okay. And then they can come to your restaurants, compare Le Pen and uh, Bywater American Bistro and do yourself a favor and do that. Get to New Orleans. <laughs> get to bask in this woman's presence because it is a truly beautiful thing. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much to our producer, Jennifer Martnick. Thank you to Douglas Wagner for our delightful theme song. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend, write a review, or rate us. Also, don't forget to to subscribe to the Food & Wine Pro newsletter. If there is something you'd like for us to talk about or a guest you'd like to hear from, please let us know. You can find me on Twitter at KittenWithAWhip. Find out more about the show and catch up on all the episodes at foodandwine.com and Food & Wine's YouTube page. Thank you for listening. Take good care of yourself until the next time. And let's just all be in a beachy state of mind. (laughs) 